Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I'm your host, William Schmidt. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tax Justice Warriors. I am your co-host, William Schmidt, the LITC Director at Lake Lake Western Missouri. Andrew Belter here, LITC Director at Wisconsin Judicare. Well, welcome, Andrew. And we were just talking to prep for the podcast. And so I was wanting to follow up on a case. And then we wanted to discuss answers in tax court. So I was going to start out a little bit of follow up from the last ABA section of taxation meeting and overall i i thought it was it was a good meeting it was informative got to hear some good information like the uh individual and family taxation talking about math errors and and things like that but one of the big pieces i wanted to focus on was i guess what i'm pronouncing as the bachelor case so uh, B-O-E-C-H-L-E-R, that this is a case that was appealed from tax court to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court of the United States heard this tax case, and a big part of it is about jurisdiction. That uh, my, Now, this, this is all my understanding of what happened in the case that the taxpayer was a day late in filing and the tax court is a very strict jurisdiction forum and that if you are a day late in in filing your petition then the tax court does not have jurisdiction and they dismiss your case so the big issue is regarding equitable tolling and so uh, a breakdown in, in my in the explanation that, that I have um, some notes here is the taxpayer didn't receive notice due to no fault of their own. And they're listing three categories that the taxpayer might have been misled. So let's say a taxpayer calls the IRS and gets some faulty information from the person on the phone as compared to the written forms telling them about deadlines would would be the first example. Uh, The second is if they timely file, but in the wrong place. So they mail their petition to the IRS instead of the tax court. And so in the Internal Revenue Manual, it directs the IRS employee to forward that on to the tax court, but there's certainly an issue if the IRS does it, but it is not timely forwarded to the tax court for jurisdiction. And then the the third category, they're saying it's nobody's fault. And I think by that they're saying nobody's fault between the, the IRS and the taxpayer, but the, the taxpayer is mailing it in 
and there's some some problem with the IRS or or like the the IRS mailed out the notice and the the taxpayer never received it. So those are three categories with regard to equitable tolling, um, different arguments that whether it's tax clinics or in private practice, they have been making, but there hasn't been a lot of traction for that within the tax court itself. And so we're seeing whether there will be traction with the Supreme Court that whatever their ruling is, how that would affect the tax court moving forward. So with, with regard to um, some of these cases, whether they're maybe a, a equitable tolling argument to make that in this Bachelor case, that the on the facts, there was both uh, a jurisdictional issue that it was late filing with the tax court, and there is um, there are facts of equitable tolling. So, uh, for one thing, one of the attorneys who had worked with Keith Fogg, Carl Smith, has been looking for cases that might fit in the facts of equitable tolling, so that if there is a favorable ruling in Bechler, then maybe maybe more cases could be filed regarding equitable tolling with the tax court. But for now, it's just a time to wait and see what the Supreme Court gives as a ruling. But that was something that, that I hadn't been paying attention to. But once I, I heard about it at the ABA tax meeting, um, I, I thought that was quite interesting and, and could have a lot of ramifications for tax court cases. So I wanted to bring that to your attention. I guess I just kind of always assumed equitable tolling applied to situations such as these notices. So it was a little bit of a surprise because I envision courts strive to be fair and equity is basically a synonym of fairness, if I'm not mistaken. So I would think that they would always apply equitable tolling if the facts were or warranted it. Yeah, and in my conversations with, I mean, I, I think maybe I've had a conversation with Keith Fogg about it, or, or at least looking at procedurally taxing. But yeah, when, when I was working with the Collection Due Process Summit Initiative, that, that that was one of the things looking at equitable tolling with regard to collection due process, because it's it's easy for taxpayers to send their responses to the wrong place and that does that that can eventually drill down to the tax court but i mean often it's just between the taxpayer and the irs with regard to whether it's a collection due process or an equivalent hearing but but yeah what i what i learned from keith was that really they these are good arguments to make and they've they've been trying to make them in the different different circuit court they've they've done filings there to try and and see what could happen but but really within the courts there there hadn't been you know judges agreeing that 
to support equitable tolling that, you know, they, they could sympathize, but there wasn't really the legal grounds to uphold equitable tolling. So now it's before the Supreme Court to see, you know, do they support it or, or not? And, you know, even, even if it's a, a negative ruling for the taxpayer, I do believe that that different you know, people are still making those arguments and, you know, we're just seeing how much they grow from there. I've also wondered if they send it, if the IRS sends it to an incompetent person, is there some sort of argument for that where it's told, it's told until their guardian or power of attorney comes upon it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think those are, at least valid arguments to make, but you know, again, I, I wonder how successful some of them will be. That you know, yeah, it's there are strict deadlines for for some of these things, and you know, certainly they may seem like reasonable arguments for equitable tolling, but you know, whether whether that gets you anywhere so far, that that hasn't been the case. That. You know, but I, I think they are arguments worth making in, you know, that if, you know, yeah, if, if you go into it knowing, okay, they're going to tell me no, but, you know, maybe, maybe I can get them to, to saying yes, I, I think it's worth making those arguments. Yeah, because the IRS will waive late penalties for filing a tax return in certain situations. That's not a completely hard deadline. So, I guess it would make sense that some of these other deadlines that they have might have be have some wiggle room as well, if sufficiently proved. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the, and I'm blanking on on the the proper term, but I think it's financial insolvency that uh, a reason why a person w- was late to. I was blanking on the term too. I, I thought it was financially illiterate. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. I don't know which one it is. Yeah, I'll, I'm actually going to see if I can pull it up quickly. But okay. Well, anyway, I did a past episode on it, and the the point being that if a person is late with regard to the three year deadline for receiving a refund, that they're trying to show they have a medical reason for why basically they should be an exception to that deadline. And, and so they need a, like a doctor's letter and different, different support. But my experience, I mean, I, I can only really think of one case I had, but then when I talked to the taxpayer advocate service too, it just seemed to be that that experience was that the IRS denies those cases regularly anyway. And, and so to me, it's, it, it was a little frustrating that like, okay, it's, it's codified in the Internal Revenue Code, but if they're not allowing it, then, then that's frustrating the, the purpose of it even being there, that, you know, it, it just seems like a waste of everyone's time to promise to some taxpayers that, hey, if you, if you follow these steps, you know, maybe you can receive your refund even though even though you were late but if the irs winds up just denying those then 
know, that, that just frustrates the taxpayers. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a extreme ridiculous person at times. So I've, I've thought, what if someone was kidnapped or held hostage for 30 days? So literally could not respond to a, you know, a 30 day notice. Would the IRS hold it against this person? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure we could come up with different scenarios that, that seem reasonable to us, but it's, it's frustrating when, when there are strict deadlines and, and no, no wiggle room yeah. around them that, yeah, I mean, those, those seem like, you know, reasonable exceptions to me, but I mean, at, at different times that it's like, well, you know, sorry, you missed the deadline. There's, there's no exceptions, you know, people are out of luck. All these natural disasters, you would think that someone would have run into this situation. Well, that's, that's a little bit too, you know, and, and the, the case itself is not, not coming up to me, but that's the thing like timely filing with the tax court that there was an issue with a snowstorm in Washington, D.C. And the, the clerk's office at the tax court, I believe, wasn't open to receive the, the mail. You know, so, so there, that's been going back and forth over the years recently of how to calculate timely filing with the tax court you know, and, and, and like holidays and, and so on that, that the, I don't know, it gets, it gets confusing to, to calculate if, if you're filing something in the mail. So that's why I try and file as, as soon as I can and file online. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I alluded to it with the, my new year's resolutions on a previous episode, but I lost track of, of two of our, our cases where people had to file petitions and my paralegal reminded me and I filed on the last day for two tax court petitions and <laughs> I was like, okay, never again am I going to let it go that late, but yeah, it, it can be, it can be a big problem in you know, have, have you timely filed or not? And, so, and can you, can, can you fax CDP hearing requests? I think you can, right? It's, it says on the form that you can fax, but I tried calling the practitioner priority line to find out like, okay, what, what is that fax number? And they couldn't, they couldn't tell me. And so as far as I know, even though in the instructions it says you can fax it in, they don't provide a fax number, so you always have to mail it in. Huh. And well. I, I wrote for Procedurally Taxing about the Weber case where a gentleman received the CDP notice and it had one address for making a payment and one address for sending in the, the CDP notice and he put it in the wrong way. And so, yeah, mailed it to Kansas City instead of the other location where he was supposed to send the CDP notice. And so um, I think it was Judge Gustafson, he wrote an order that, that really 
took the IRS to task. And then after that, between different, you know, a little bit of that publicity and the judge focusing on that um, and, and us at the, the CDP Summit Initiative, then the IRS wound up um, changing in the Internal Revenue Manual that if, if someone mails it, mails their CDP request to the IRS, even if it's the wrong address, it's still treated as timely filed. So, Interesting. yeah, so at, at least that change was, was made. But okay, I wanted to pivot to answers in the tax court that there's been a little bit of a discussion in the ABA pro bono and tax clinic listserv recently about answers. And I, I saw a little bit of, I have some notes about some pros and cons, but thought I'd turn it to you first on, on giving your thoughts, Andrew. At first I thought, yeah, this does seem like a kind of a waste because it's always deny, deny, deny. But there were some good things brought up. You know, you, you do get the name of the attorney so that you have a contact person. And I think one of them mentioned this keeps the IRS attorneys accountable to make sure that things are timely filed. I guess I never would have thought of that. So I see why, where the, the benefits are. It would just be nice if they were a little more clear about with their answers than just blanket denying everything. Yeah, it. I think some of the the recent frustrations are that, yeah, the the answer just kind of down the line says deny from the IRS Office of Chief Counsel, and you know, and I I know in in working with our local counsel that it's like, sure, they may say deny on the on the answer, but they're willing to work with me on the case itself. So the the answer sounds harsh, but you know, they're they're willing to work on it. And I, I think one of the other complaints or whatever about the current answer is that just really the the slow process basically that that there there will be an answer, but then in in the handoff between counsel and appeals, it's it's tough to know like how many months it will be before appeals responds, who the appeals officer would be. So I was I was going to give a little bit of historic context that it's my understanding that from 1983 to 2007, that there were no answers filed in the tax court for the S cases, the, the small cases. And so I guess in 2007, they, they brought back the answers, but yes, like, like you were saying, Andrew, now, now it's just a matter of the answers with with den denials on them, and so one one question was, well, if we do away with the answer, then you know what what do we put in its place? Is is there some kind of proposal? Are you asking me? Well, 
Yeah, as I'll, I'll just kind of summarize some things and then, then go from there. But yeah, some of the positives with an answer in, so I was, I was looking through the different emails of, of um, listing what, what people posted to the listserv, is that you do see that the Office of, of Chief Counsel, that they've responded to the petition. Um, so it stops the pro se petitioners from wondering a little bit about what's going on in the case, that they're not contacting the tax court if there's anything happening in their case. The answer means that the administrative file is forwarded to counsel's office so that they, they do review the file. You get a contact attorney. And if the petitioner doesn't include a copy of their the notice of deficiency or whichever notice, then counsel does attach a, a redacted copy to their answer. So those, those are the positives. The negatives, like, like we were saying, the answer that just basically denies everything in the petition, unrepresented petitioners that if they receive the answer, sometimes they're confused that they just see those denials and think, well, I've lost the case. I guess it's over. And one person was putting that, I, I think in general, the, this is a little criticism about the tax court process, but some taxpayers, you know, may, may not like getting their answer because they, they're fearful of court proceedings or an aversion to the public outcomes with the case. So in Keith Fogg's email, so to, to keep citing him, he was saying he, he does like the statement of jurisdiction where it's, it says how timely the petition was that was filed, but that it should list the council attorney and the appeals officer assigned to the case. And so he's saying there should be a proposal and one person suggested there be that the proposal would be for a hybrid of an answer and a status report. So saying like, you know, yeah, it may deny the different contentions in the petition, but then, yeah, it also say like whether they, I don't know if, if this is getting into a pre-trial memo saying like whether they, the IRS would be interested in a trial or what, but I think like Keith was saying that, that it lists the council attorney and the appeals officer just in general. So anyone who looks at the answer would, would have a, a, a little bit of a general feel for what's happening with the case. So I, I would agree with that. I, I think that would be more useful than, than the current answer because when I look at it, I mean, I usually just expect uh, blanket denials from the IRS and that it, it doesn't help me in any way when I get the answer. And, and I think you had made the point before that it's tough to know like what their different denials are in connection with what's been filed on the petition. Yes, I don't really know how to match up what, I think they're doing it by the numbers on the petition. But some of the stuff has chunks. Like I think number four on the petition is ex explain why you disagree. So then you list them out individually. And then I think five is list the facts 
that you base your disagreement on. So I'm not exactly sure where they start breaking it out like that. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's a little bit tough to tell like what what matches up in in the petition I filed with their answer, but I mean, generally they're saying deny. So I don't I don't really worry too much about like which paragraph matches up to what. But same, <laughs> same to be honest. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I just you know started dialogue with with local council and you know, okay, what what paperwork do I need to submit to to prove our case or or, or yeah, speak, speaking with appeals to, to like, can we get it settled at, at that point? But yeah, I just, I mean, I, I glance over the answer to see if there's anything terribly useful. And a lot of times there isn't, you know, maybe, maybe if there is something for the, the notice of deficiency or, or whatever that, that I didn't have before, but, you know, otherwise in the answer itself, I don't know that I've, I've really received terribly much that helped the case. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, we, we wanted to bring these topics to the discussion. I, I don't know if we have two terribly big answers for everyone, but we at least wanted to, to throw some discussion out there. So, okay. Well, well, thank you for, you know, your input, Andrew. It's, I, I always, do value your your thoughts on the topics and you know it's it's always good to have have these discussions so yeah i think it helps when you can discuss it with someone else and then hear some other point of views i mean i think we're you're pretty much agree on both topics equitable tolling and the answers so yeah i mean the litc point of view is you know Let's let's advance things for the taxpayers as, as much as we can. So, you yeah. know, things aren't awful at this point, but if we can help taxpayers more, that's that's what we want to do. So exactly. So yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew. It, it was good to see you. And for the listener, please tune in to our next episode. Have a good one. You too. <laughs> thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.